Like many associations, we are continuing to evolve in new ways. I think certainly the economics of all of our existence are a little bit strained right now, but I actually think it's a really exciting time to be here. While the pandemic has been difficult and certainly had a lot of negatives with it, it created a lot of opportunities for associations, particularly Kerr. It really helped us think about things in new ways, prompted us to create programs or sunset ones that maybe were no longer really serving our community. Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association execs tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing their bottom line, serving their members, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with Lindsay Curry, Executive Officer at the Council on Undergraduate Research, or CUR. Lindsay, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, Lindsay, tell us about CUR. Happy to. The Council on Undergraduate Research is an organization that serves faculty, administrators, students at higher education institutions as they establish and promote undergraduate research opportunities. And that is when students get to do a lot more of the practice and the theory. So it's that hands-on learning, interacting with whatever it is that they are there studying and getting that real life interaction with their research. And we find that it helps them create these kind of lifelong skills that make them more employable, ready for being good citizens, ready for graduate school, wherever their world is going to take them. But they have these skills of problem solving, thinking creatively, working in teams that will do them well into the future. So our organization helps universities, colleges, faculty establish these programs and good practice to better support their students. Lindsay, as someone who has a freshman in college, I'm going to think hard about this because You often think about graduate students doing research, but it sounds like it's potentially even more beneficial for the undergrads. Certainly. And we're actually even hearing high school students doing it now. It helps them understand what the opportunities are out there in front of them and gives them these, again, these really great skills on how to speak to individuals. Again, we're all trying to solve problems. Being able to confront failure in a really healthy way in a good environment where they're supported and understand that there's learnings that can come out of failure, we all could use more practice there. So I highly recommend it for you poking your son a little bit to see if it's a good fit for him as well. Amazing. So Lindsay, tell us about your journey and how you got to be executive officer at Kerr. 
I am just over three years into this role. Congratulations. Thank you. A chaotic three years in the world for all of us, but certainly a, an interesting time to come on as a first-time CEO. And I'm also my organization's first association professional leading the organization. Ooh, big changes. Certainly. And really, my trajectory for how I got here is... Just out of college, I had the opportunity to work at a communications firm, and we had a handful of clients that were associations, which I had never really heard of or really thought about for sure, and loved the work we were doing with these groups and was like, oh, I can actually even work with these groups. And so shortly thereafter, I actually started working at Kerr for the very first time. And it was because at that time I wanted to go back into graduate school. And I said, how can I learn more about these organizations through this association? And what I actually found is six years in that I loved working with members. I loved working with publications and just loved it. And so from there, I hopped to another organization where I was director of stakeholder engagement. Again, continuing to learn about how associations work learning that I really, it wasn't just those original members I loved. I loved working with volunteers and members in general. And at that point became highly engaged in the American Society of Association Executives as a volunteer and started kind of building a network of mentors and spent you know a considerable amount of time with them thinking about what I wanted my future to look like. I had some really memorable meals with some folks that were saying, okay, now you have to go and take your CAE. And I was like, nice, good advice. Right. But I wasn't so sure. Was I ready for this? And they said, at least just study for it. Get the book, figure out and learn a little bit more. Sat down for what was one of the hardest tests, certainly of my lifetime. But in that practicing, learned about association law and HR practices and all of the things beyond the membership I was working on. And was like, ooh, I like this even more. And so started, you know, meeting with other executives to understand how they were running their organization, what were the things keeping them at night to figure out what kind of leader I wanted to be long-term. And the opportunity arose to come back to Kerr to be their executive officer. And here I am. Amazing. Congratulations. So how is Kerr doing? I think like many associations, we are continuing to evolve in new ways. I think certainly the economics of all of our existence are a little bit strained right now, but I actually think it's a really exciting time to be here. While the pandemic has been difficult and certainly had a lot of negatives with it, it created a lot of opportunities for associations, particularly Kerr. It really helped us think about things in new ways, prompted us to create programs or sunset ones that maybe we're no longer really serving our community. And we're doing a lot of, I think, testing and innovation and really enjoying working with the community and the team that services our community right now. So Lindsay, in my conversation with you, you talked about how Kerr's doing great. I mean, membership is doing well, revenue is up. Talk to us about something you're doing that's really helping you achieve the success. And a lot of it you attribute to the planning that you're doing and the type of planning that you're doing. Yes. So part of that earlier journey I was talking about, Ryan, is I was trying to determine what kind of association executive I wanted to be and what my approach for our organization was going to be was really interacting with some thought leaders around foresight and futures thinking. 
Ooh, wait a minute. What's that? Define that for us. It is looking at the 10-year-plus horizon and trying to understand what are the future possibilities for the environment in which you are servicing. And so how we are leveraging that is thinking about what is higher ed going to look like 10 years plus from now and building backwards an association that will be able to sustain and support our organization in 2032 and beyond. And so it is helping us really build and evaluate all of our programs to ensure that they are going to keep us relevant long-term. So talk to us about some things that have come out of this foresight planning that have really helped you just kill it. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that support, Joanna. One of the things that seems maybe not as exciting, but it is certainly, I think, a piece that is essential to our long-term success is we think about new people coming into the marketplace. All of our for-profit competitors are doing research and development. They have all of these development funds. They're testing things constantly. And associations are typically running on a one or two-year budget cycle. And that is only allowing you to invest in and focus on things that are going to happen in the next 12 to 18 months. So one of the things that our board did was they established a part of our reserves and our endowment to an opportunity fund. So we can use these funds to think about and test for the future and build things that might be farther out than our current year budget could sustain. So investment policy statements are not usually that sexy thing that gets people excited, but really to me, it is the basis for us being able to dream and test and think about and build for the future. There was something really practical that came out of this too, which was you wanted to really modernize the organization. And so when the pandemic hit, you were set up for it. Yeah, we tried to. And it's not just me. It's certainly the leaders of the organization being supportive and coming along this journey with me and certainly seeing what the value of looking farther out can be. So they have been critical partners for us being able to reimagine what the organization will look like. They are certainly the experts on where the higher ed trajectory is going to go, whereas I can bring in and the team that works with me can help them understand what are good practices in meetings and educational development and those sorts of things. And so where are we pulling in expertise from key members of this leadership of the organization? So it is a combination of certainly staff and volunteers that are getting us here. Yeah, and you were looking to really modernize the office. And so when the pandemic hit, you just sent everybody home and you never came back. We never came back. Some of that was certainly a gift that they chose to kick us kindly out of our office space. But we spent some serious time as a team thinking about, okay, this is not a a two-week vacation that we're at home, right? Maybe we don't need to wear our pajamas every day because that might not be the best headspace for some of us. Some of us, it works great. But we spent some serious time establishing what our practices and procedures are to be a healthy virtual organization and establish opportunities for us to still innovate together, for us to ideate, for us to plan and execute things as a a virtual organization. So one of the key pieces to that was we established some team values. So not just our organizational values, but values for our team, communications, hierarchies, and support structures so we could be a healthy, thriving virtual organization. 
So another thing that you said that came out of this foresight planning is your STAR program. (laughs) Oh man, please tell us about this because this is so exciting and so forward thinking. Oh, thank you. Set the stage for us. Like what's the context for the STAR program and why is it needed? Absolutely. So a key part of what a lot of organizations do is advocacy work. And the pandemic certainly put a juggernaut in that for all of us, right? People weren't seeing folks on the Hill. Our advocates couldn't go and travel. Advocacy needed to look different or especially for our organization. And so we had the last two years shifted to kind of a two-day Twitter takeover instead of Hill visits, which was wildly successful. But what we were also hearing is that advocacy needs to be more than a two-day event. People weren't really going to be returning to the Hill the same way that they always were doing it. And at the same time, the environment in which higher ed finds itself is one that is evolving, but also experiencing kind of a declining trust within our greater population. Science is certainly being challenged and a large Ah, portion of our members are research scientists. There's also this challenge as to whether a very expensive college education is essential or not, or, or how can students build other skills? And so this program that we developed, and it was really a joint effort across our teams and our consultants and really taking some time to listen to our members. And what we were hearing is advocacy at the federal level was no longer going to be the only thing we needed to do. But most of us don't have these skills or understand what being an advocate looks like. It's not necessarily a space we feel comfortable. So we established a STAR program, which shout out to my marketing folks, because who does not want to be a STAR, right? Also stands alone right there. But it means scholars transforming through research. And so we are talking about the value of the undergraduate research experience on the student, on their college environment, their communities on the greater public and helping them have the skills and the language to go and advocate to many different audiences about why that is so valuable and what the impacts are at varying levels. So it certainly will continue to have an element that helps us advocate at the federal level for funding for undergraduate research, but it will also give the participants skills and widen our ambassador base to go and talk with folks on their campuses, in their communities, to local newspapers, on podcasts. So garnering the skills of how do you go and speak to different audiences with different languages, all to communicate the same message about the power of undergraduate research. And Lindsay, this isn't a two-day program. This is a long program. It's like six months long, right? Exactly. So you get to go deep. Yes, we recognize that there are limits of a Hill Day, In two days, you are not going to be able to give these kind of lifelong skills. And so what our aim here is at the end of the STAR program is that we have civically engaged researchers. And so, yes, we're doing a kickoff in Washington, D.C. in October where students will and their faculty members. So students and faculty members are getting this training. Amazing. So it's a team effort. The faculty members are a key piece of this because they will stay at the institutions, right? And can continue to pass these learnings on to future students and to their colleagues and for their students as they go and enter into the world. So it is a team effort and they'll kick it off in person with a two-day intensive training where they learn about what is going to be their message, what is their statement, 
And then over the course of the next six months, we will be helping them through webinar workshops, learning how to work on that key message in different languages for different audiences. What is the appropriate level when you're going to speak to a, a representative versus maybe somebody in your church group or faculty advisor, your neighbor? Exactly. President of a company. They'll all need a different length of time, level of detail, switching the language. And so giving them the skills to understand what is expected in all of those environments and how they can move this forward. So how's it going? So you're kicking it off in October. What's been the interest level? Far exceeded our expectations. Yes. Which I think is so exciting that people want to garner these skills. But, you know, hill days are very limited, right? You can only get as many people as you can meetings or or space on Capitol Hill. And what expanding this allowed us to do is bring a lot more participation in. And so our Hill Day used to be 60 to 70 folks. This year, it's a pilot program. We're just shy of 200 participants. Oh my God, Lindsay. Wow. So you're creating like a cadre of students and professors who are well-versed in your mission and can speak to different types of people, and you're doing it in an intensive way over a long period of time, man, these students are getting an amazing training from you because they'll use this forever. I certainly hope so. That is the goal. We want it to really impact them for a lifetime, not just for a one-day hill visit. And they'll be ambassadors for undergraduate research and CUR forever. Yes. And have the skills to do it for whatever comes along their way, helping them to be ambassadors. And Lindsay, academics usually shy away from anything related to advocacy or policy, but somehow you've, you've got them excited about this. How'd you do that? A lot of it is a lack of understanding what it can look like, what is a healthy way to engage. And so by supporting them with giving them the skills and the development to be successful ambassadors, I think that they're going to come out the other side. And, and that's part of why we're running it as a pilot How will we need to tweak it in the future? What other elements do we need to add in and continue to develop and refine this program? Because advocacy and the world is going to continue to change, so new elements will need to come in and other elements might be less relevant as time goes on. Hey, one more question before we go. How did you get your board to think so far in the future? Because usually boards, especially board chairs, they want to see the effects of their work during their term. But if you're looking at what's going to happen in the next 10 years, how do you get them to think that way? Well, it is a work in progress. We haven't figured it all out. But one of the frameworks that really helped for our board was we, instead of always using the word foresight and future thinking, which is a little bit intimidating, and they really were fearful of this idea of predicting the future, which we try to communicate. It's not about predicting the future. It is a systematic approach to figuring out what future possibilities might look like. So forecasting the future. Ah, so it's forecasting without predicting so that if maybe something that you said might happen doesn't happen, there's no blame. There's no blame, but there's also an organization that is flexible as a result. So you are able to say, oh, that's okay that this didn't work, but we are now better prepared for this other thing here. But the framework that really worked well for our board is using the verbiage anticipatory planning. Ooh. And that was something that our board was like, oh, yeah, we want to be prepared, right? We want to be ready. 
And that was what helped click with them. So finding the right language to do that foresight work with your board is really key. I love that anticipatory planning, because who doesn't want to anticipate? And even if you don't know the future, it's probably a muscle. The more you do it, the better you get. And the more nimble you are when something big happens. Exactly. And our group likes to be comfortable. They don't want to be caught off guard. And that's what really got them behind it was, oh, they want to always be seen as the experts. They want to be prepared for the future. And so it was a tool that really helped them provide a framework to think it through. Wow, Lindsay, it sounds like you're doing amazing things at Kerr. I want to thank you so much for sharing what you're doing with your governance and your planning. And good luck with the kickoff in October. Thank you so much. I hope to talk to you again soon. Absolutely. We'll have you back. Thanks so much, Lindsay. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye. Bye.